What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are listening to the Citizen Truth Podcast. We are honored today to have the legend Richard Rothstein on the podcast today. His book is The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Richard, let's get right into it. Um, Why tackle segregation? What is calling you to this issue? Racial segregation is the uh, single biggest cause of the social inequality and the consequent problems that this country uh, faces today. Uh, because of racial segregation, we, uh, our schools are struggling with an enormous uh, achievement gap between black and white children that results in large part because uh, African-American children come to school with such serious social and economic disadvantages from living in areas of concentrated disadvantage that uh, they overwhelm the ability of schools to educate them. And um, uh, they, uh, uh, it causes health disparities and enormous costs to the, uh, uh, our health system because African-Americans have shorter life expectancies, greater rates of cardiovascular disease, for example, from living in more polluted, uh, less healthy neighborhoods, less clean air, less access to uh, grocery stores selling fresh food. It underlies the um, mass incarceration and the police abuse of uh, African-Americans that would not exist if we weren't concentrating the most disadvantaged young men in single neighborhoods without access to good jobs or the transportation to get to those jobs or schools that are overwhelmed with with, uh, the the social and economic disadvantages of the children. And segregation uh, also underlies the very, very dangerous and frightening uh, political polarization that we have in this country that largely tracks racial lines. Uh, it, um, uh, it's impossible for me to conceive how we are ever going to preserve this democracy if so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other that we have no ability to understand each other, no ability to empathize with each other's life experiences, um, That's a threat to our democracy. Uh, We have no ability to develop a common national identity. So I think racial segregation is the single biggest domestic problem that we face. And if we don't address it, uh, not only is this country going to spend a lot of money that it doesn't need to spend on education and on health, but it's going to have enormous uh, consequences um, uh, for the future of our democracy as well. In your book, you talk about de facto and de jure segregation. Uh, What is the difference between those two? Well, we have a myth in this country uh, that the reason we have segregated neighborhoods is because um, of private activity, primarily. Um, uh, Homeowners and white homeowners and landlords refusing to sell or rent to African-Americans in white neighborhoods or um, businesses in the private economy, banks, real estate agencies, uh, developers, uh, law firms, insurance companies, acting in a discriminatory fashion, or because people just like to live with each other of the same race, or because of income differences. All of these um, individual bigoted, uh, but non-public activities, private sector activities is what we say created segregation, and we give a name to it. We say we have de facto segregation. It turns out it's an other myth. And my book, The Color of Law, documents 
how uh, the segregation that we have in this country today, the apartheid system of residential neighborhoods that we have, is the product um, primarily of government policy at federal, state, and local levels, racially explicit policy, not the unintended consequences of benign policies, but racially explicit policies on the part of the federal, state, and local governments to ensure that African-Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area of this country. It's an unconstitutional system of segregation. Nothing de facto about it. De facto segregation is an other myth. Of course, there's private bigotry, but private bigotry could not have succeeded in uh, segregating this country. Uh, it was only because government required private bigotry, required people to act in discriminatory fashion, even if they weren't inclined to do so. But whether they were inclined to do so or not, if the government had required them, for example, if the government had required developers and it subsidized to sell homes on a non-discriminatory basis, uh, we wouldn't have the segregation in this country that we have today. Instead, the government created a suburban system uh, by subsidizing suburban developers in every metropolitan area of this country on condition that they never sell a home to an African-American. The government even required them to place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. So that's why I say that de facto segregation is an other myth, not that the private bigotry didn't exist, but it was required, structured, maintained and reinforced by public policy. Wow, that is so, that's wild. Um... One of the methods you talk about uh, of how the government enforced segregation was through public housing. Um, how did public housing create or enforce segregation? Well, the first public housing in this country was uh, created uh, in the New Deal in the Depression by the Roosevelt administration. We had many integrated neighborhoods in urban areas in the mid early 20th century. Uh, we'd be stunned if we were transported back to that time to see the extent of non-segregation that existed, primarily because we were a manufacturing economy. Factories needed to be located near deep water ports and railroad terminals to get their parts, ship their final products. So workers in those factories, as well as employees of banks that were servicing them and other industries, had to be located relatively near those factories because uh, not many people had automobiles. We didn't have highways to bring people in from suburbs. Uh, they had to be able to walk to work or take short streetcar rides. So we had many integrated neighborhoods. The um, uh, federal government built the first public housing in this country uh, in the New Deal, in the Depression, in the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s. And everywhere it built it, it segregated it, creating separate projects for African-Americans and whites, frequently creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. Uh, the great African-American poet, novelist, playwright, Langston Hughes, wrote in his autobiography that he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. Uh, we don't uh, think of downtown Cleveland as a non-segregated place today, but he said his best friend in high school was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. Uh, that was an integrated high school in an integrated neighborhood called the Central Neighborhood of Cleveland. Well, the 1930s, when the federal government began for the first time to build public housing, it created two separate projects in that neighborhood, one for whites, one for African-Americans, prohibiting, um, uh, uh, creating rather, creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. 
And it did this all over the country. In my book, The Color of Law, I um, uh, like where I can to point out some self-satisfied smug places that think they're better than the rest of the country. And they're not. Uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, that you may be familiar with, uh, the area between Harvard and MIT was an integrated neighborhood uh, in the 1930s. It was about half white, half black, called the Central Square neighborhood. The federal government went to that neighborhood and built the first public housing there, uh, creating separate projects for whites and blacks, creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. And elsewhere in the Boston metropolitan area with other segregated projects, reinforced, perpetuated it, sustained it, uh, contributing in large part, uh, along with that other policy I described earlier of uh, subsidizing uh, suburban communities for whites only, uh, creating the segregation that we know today there. Uh, during World War II, the entire West Coast was segregated by public housing policy. Uh, the hundreds of thousands of white and black workers flocked to centers of war production uh, on the West Coast, as well as through the rest of the country during World War II, taking jobs in war industries that hadn't previously existed on the West Coast, it was mostly shipbuilding and airplane manufacture. Uh, the um, white and black workers who came to uh, the West Coast to take jobs in these plants overwhelmed the communities where the war plants were located. The government wanted the ships and the planes and the jeeps and the tanks to be produced. It had to um, provide housing for these workers and it did, it created segregated housing. In San Francisco, for example, it built five uh, war project housing of war housing projects. Uh, four were for whites only. One was for African-Americans. These were people working in the same shipyards, uh, but um, the African-American project was located in an area that then became the African-American neighborhood of San Francisco, a segregated place. Across the bay, in another one of those smug places of uh, Berkeley, California, uh, the federal government built housing uh, for um, war workers working in shipyards uh, on the bay the uh, federal government built housing for the white workers uh, near the residential area, near shopping, and for the black workers, segregated housing for workers working in the same work plants, same shipyards, uh, for the black workers along the industrial area and the railroad tracks. Uh, this was done all over the West Coast, uh, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles as well, was segregated in this way for the first time by the federal government's public housing programs. Wow. Another area uh, that you talk about that impacted segregation was zoning. Um, how did industrial or, or toxic waste zoning impact African-American neighborhoods? Well, it worked in both ways. Once a neighborhood was an African-American neighborhood, um, city authorities permitted uh, modified zoning in some cases to permit toxic waste and in industrial facilities to be placed in that neighborhood. Or in the other direction, if there were communities that already had uh, toxic waste and in industrial facilities, those were neighborhoods that were uh, not zoned uh, for uh, single family homes only. And African-Americans were forced because they had no other options and uh, had lower incomes, renting apartments to move into those neighborhoods. So it, it worked in both ways. Uh, industrial and toxic waste facilities were all placed in already African-American neighborhoods and African-Americans had few choices of where to live except in neighborhoods that already had those kinds of facilities. 
Um, one thing we hear about a lot is uh, white flight and the suburbanization of America. One thing you talk about is the uh, is blockbusting. Um, could you explain that practice? Sure. Um, you know, the African-American population grew um, in the 20th century. And when it was constricted to single defined neighborhoods in urban areas, it really... Um, it burst out of those neighborhoods. So the neighborhoods became overcrowded. Families that could afford it wanted to move out of those neighborhoods into adjoining neighborhoods that were typically all white. It was to the advantage of a white homeowner to sell to one of these African-American families, even if their home had been required by the federal government to sell uh, only uh, to whites. Uh, but they sold it to African-Americans anyway, because African-Americans who had a smaller available supply from which to choose and higher demand because they were so overcrowded, were willing to pay more for housing than whites were willing to pay for similar housing. So if you had a white homeowner in one of these adjoining neighborhoods that uh, wanted to sell, maybe got a better job somewhere else, maybe had a larger family for whatever reason, it was to that homeowner's advantage to sell to a black rather than to a white buyer because the black buyer would pay more. Uh, property values went up when African-Americans moved into these neighborhoods as a result. But frequently what then happened <clears throat> is uh, speculators, real estate agents descended on these neighborhoods and saw an opportunity to make a killing. They frightened white homeowners into thinking that their neighborhood was going to be declining in value. In fact, the opposite was happening. The property values were going up, as I mentioned. But they frightened white homeowners that uh, their um, homes were going to decline in value because African-Americans were moving into their neighborhood. Um, they, uh, in, in The Color of Law, my book, I described the tactics that some of these speculators used. They were called blockbusters. They hired black women to walk through the neighborhood pushing baby carriages. They hired young black men to drive through the neighborhood in cars with their radios blasting. They hired um, uh, burglars to burglarize homes. They organized burglaries in these neighborhoods to give white families the idea that crime was rising in their communities. Then uh, they persuaded these frightened white homeowners to sell to them at below market value because they threatened these homeowners that if they didn't, their homes were going to be declined even further in value. And then they turned around and resold it to African-Americans who were desperate for housing at more than their fair market value. So this whole process was called blockbusting. White flight uh, was organized by these uh, speculators, these real estate agents. It was, and uh, you know, I, I call this unconstitutional practice because every one of those real estate agents was licensed by their state governments. And if um, we wanted that blockbusting to stop, all we needed to do is lift the licenses of a couple of these speculators uh, who were practicing this kind of uh, blockbusting and the practice would have ended. So I, I lay responsibility for this um, uh, white flight and blockbusting at the feet of state regulatory agencies that license every real estate agency in this country every broker. Wow. So, uh, Richard, I recently moved to Miami, Florida. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is the placement of Interstate 95. Um, how are highways used to demolish prosperous African-American neighborhoods around the nation? 
Well, um, one of the many racially explicit policies that the federal government used to create reinforced segregation was the uh, routing of interstate highways when they went through cities. Uh, As you mentioned in The Color of Law, I give um, a full explanation of the one in Miami that was specifically routed uh, to go through Overton, which was a um, a neighborhood, a black neighborhood in in Miami. I wouldn't call it prosperous, but it was stable. It was a a working class neighborhood primarily. Um, And uh, the um, mayor and uh, other planners of government officials of Miami wanted to move that black population out of that area. It was too close to downtown so far as they were concerned and move them to a more distant segregated black neighborhood. So they simply demolished the neighborhood uh, in order to run a, um, a highway, the interstate highway through it. In other communities, in some places, uh, it was also used for this purpose to demolish uh, black housing. In some places it was used simply to create a barrier between black and white neighborhoods that would be more difficult for African-Americans to cross. For example, in Chicago, uh, if you know Chicago, the Dan Ryan Expressway was routed to create a barrier between black and white neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. This was another one of the unconstitutional, racially motivated policies uh, that uh, local governments in particular, but the federal government was financing these interstates as well, uh, practiced. Uh, we've many of us have heard of redlining before. Um, one thing that you talk about is a more recent phenomenon is uh, reverse redlining. What, what is that? Well, that term is typically used uh, for uh, banks and other mortgage originators that preyed on black and Hispanic neighborhoods uh, during the lead up to the um, housing collapse of nineteen of two thousand and eight. Uh, speculators and mortgage originators, uh, not mortgage originators, went into black neighborhoods, in particular Hispanic neighborhoods as well, to market uh, mortgage products that were exploitative, that um, they had a low uh, teaser introductory interest rates, but the fine print said that after a couple of years, those interest rates would explode to um, unaffordable levels. Uh, They had uh, also hidden in small print a um, Uh, very, very high uh, prepayment penalties, which conventional mortgages don't have. Uh, These um, uh, mortgage products that were um, marketed in black, but not in white neighborhoods um, uh, to any great extent, um, led to a foreclosure crisis uh, in uh, black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Uh, Families could no longer afford these exploding interest rates and uh, were forced to um, lose their homes. Either they couldn't sell them or uh, couldn't make their uh, mortgage payments. Uh, Foreclosures resulted, they lost their homes and uh, the neighborhoods deteriorated, foreclosed homes were boarded up. And um, it was a result of uh, racially uh, motivated discriminatory policies on the part of um, major banks, as well as uh, um, non-bank mortgage originators. And again, I say this is unconstitutional policy because these banks are very heavily regulated uh, by the federal government. Bank regulators knew that this was going on, made no effort to stop it. And uh, so the the federal government bears heavy responsibility 
for this kind of speculation. Richard, I really appreciate you writing this book and the work that you're doing. I just have one last question for you today. Um, do you have any hope for an integrated America? Well, I have great hope. Um, you know, we have a, a, a more accurate and passionate discussion about race in this country today than we ever have had before in American history, uh, about the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow. We had 20 million Americans participating in Black Lives Matter demonstrations uh, last spring and summer, uh, most of whom were white. Most of those participants were white. This is unprecedented um, in uh, American history. Um, we have white elected Southern politicians running around the South, uh, removing uh, statues that commemorate the generals who defended slavery, also unheard of just a few years ago. So I have great hope. Uh, I wrote my book, uh, the Color of Law, showing that segregation was created by a racially explicit government policy. Uh, so long as we thought it happened by accident, it's easy to think it could only unhappen by accident. Once we understand that it was created by explicit racial policy, it's easy to understand that, that racial policy, public policy can undo it. Uh, it's not hard to figure out what the uh, um, uh, policies to redress segregation are. What's needed is out of this awareness, out of this education, what's needed is a new civil rights movement that's going to create or ongoing organizations that are going to create the political pressure to translate this awareness, this consciousness about the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow into direct action. I'm involved with a group of national civil rights leaders that uh, are planning to launch in a few months something that we call a new movement to redress racial segregation. And once we do that, we will be creating local committees around the country to try to create the political demand to um, uh, redress segregation. Richard, thank you so much. Make sure you get the book, The Color of Law. Appreciate it. Thank you. Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.